And uh, we are, Lord willing, going to finish up the book of Isaiah tonight. That's kind of a big uh, monumental moment if you're a Bible student going through the Bible, as it is a large and kind of, uh, you might even say, uh, brutal book in a lot of ways. We've seen the ups and the downs of Isaiah's message, uh, and it goes uh, on the complete spectrum. Um, we've seen everything from the most uh, horrifying of wrath. Even last Sunday, we looked at how uh, God, his wrath is building up in a bucket, and it's eventually going to be poured out and ultimately lead to those who will go to that place that people make a joke or don't even believe in, uh, that is hell. And uh, if you missed Sunday, we talked all about hell, and uh, it's an important message. Uh, you know, don't you think people should know that hell exists and that it's eternal and it's torment for all of eternity? That's something people should know about. And yet it's funny to me that um, today is a day where people uh, sort of run from that topic. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of that little, you know, three-year-old that um, ha hasn't figured out yet, you know, that when they cover their eyes, you can't see me. And they think somehow because they can't see you, uh, you're not there uh, or you can't be seen or they can't be seen. And it's just a little bit immature to not just go, well, hell, I don't want to hear about it. La, 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 la. And everybody's going to win. Love wins. Heaven. And it's all good no matter who you are. Well, uh, that's, that's a wrong view. Uh, hell is real and it's hot and it's eternal. Uh, we looked at that on Sunday. So you got that extreme to where you go through uh, the plan of God for salvation of humanity. Isaiah has shown us the, the plan of the cross. You know, when you look at Isaiah 53 and some of those other chapters of, of, of very messianic, massive proportions, uh, what a bit of good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> and then we've seen in this last section of Isaiah, both the wrath to come, but also the uh, heaven that's to come and uh, eternal life through Jesus that goes into the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And as we wrap up Isaiah tonight, we're gonna kinda, we're gonna see a little bit of all of that. It's almost like at the end, he just sort of, um, forgive me, but shotguns, just kinda, bah, 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 bah. Uh, righteousness, joy, wrath, uh, new heavens and new earth. Uh, and he's just gonna say, this is kinda what my whole book was about, just in summary. And um, some people might say it's a little messy. I've actually read commentaries that talk about how the last two books, or chapters, I should say, of Isaiah um, sort of seems to flail a little bit. But part of that is the way the Jewish mind works and scholar, uh, scholarly works from Judaism. Um, one of the things they do is kind of <clears throat> circle back around to all the things that they'd been talking about. And so we're gonna kind of see a very Jewish thing here as Isaiah wraps up his book. Uh, which we like to think so linearly. Uh, we like, you know, this is what's going to happen first, then the next thing, and then on to the end. Isaiah sort of swirls around uh, and cycles through uh, everything from the tribulation period to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, you say, well, Brett, how are we supposed to know the order of events? Well, that's what the rest of the Bible sorts out for us. Um, so what you have to do when you go through Isaiah is you have to kind of identify, well, who are we talking to? Are we talking to Jews or Gentiles? Are we talking to the church of Jesus Christ? Are we talking about the millennial kingdom or are we talking about the tribulation period or the new heaven and the earth? It's time and place and people. Uh, that's how you have to kind of sort through Isaiah. But the other books, and I, I believe the book of Revelation, by the way, is the key 
that unlocks all the prophetic books of the Old Testament, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Um, it gives us sort of that blueprint of how it's all gonna come out uh, chronologically. Uh, that's, that's the way I see the book of Revelation. We'll be there in a short matter of uh, time, you know, once we finish up the Old Testament and get through the new. So uh, <laughs> let's get to it. Isaiah chapter 65 is where we're at in our Through the Bible study. Isaiah chapter 65. And we left off, you know, um, with, uh, you know, the, the blessings upon Israel for, uh, for God's mercy. And even though their righteousness is seen by God as only filthy rags in chapter 64, um, we learned in chapter 61 that he'll robe us and even his people, the Jews, robed in righteousness. And so we kind of left off with that uh, as well. And uh, we begin in chapter 65, verse one. It says, I am sought of them that ask not, of, uh, not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good <clears throat> after their own thoughts. Interesting sort of paradox uh, that Isaiah presents here. I am, I am sought of them that ask not for me, and I am found of them that sought me not. I believe that's beginning with talking about the Gentile people that we today would call the church. People that found the I am of the Jews. The Jewish people had a God, and, and the Jews are God's chosen people, but isn't it funny how the Lord says, I, I, I sought for them uh, that asked not for me. I am sought of them that asked not for me. That, that'd be us. Now the Jews, the Lord sought after, but he, he wouldn't sought, uh, they, they wouldn't seek after him. Um, you know, the Gentile nations, we, we, uh, we didn't have a clue. Um, one of the, my favorite things about going to Israel is uh, going to Lod and um, Joppa, uh, those are the places of the birthplace of uh, Christianity for the Gentiles, um, you know, where the Jews were believing in Jerusalem. But, you know, when Peter moseyed down there to Joppa and, uh, uh, and made his way up to um, Caesarea, that's when the first Gentiles were saved and became part of the church. And then later Paul would come through there and leave from uh, Caesarea. And that's where Christianity would spread from that coast to Europe at Philippi in Macedonia, and eventually into Rome, and then all over the world. Uh, you know, the Gentile nations would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, people that weren't seeking after God, whereas the Jews were. But isn't it uh, interesting, and what an irony, the people of God wouldn't seek after him, and thus they would be sort of put in a place of blindness, and we're gonna see that a little bit tonight as well. So he says, you know, the middle of verse one, I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. And I have spread out my hands all the day unto rebellious people. There's a picture there of the Lord reaching out his hands to a rebellious nation. That is the Jewish people. Um, and they were walking after their own thoughts. And by the way, you know, we, we see uh, things go cyclical, what's the word there? Uh, cyclically, I guess, uh, you know, in, in a way where we see the same thing with the Gentiles. You know, the Jews were seeking after God and then they weren't, and then they were and then they weren't. And same thing with the Gentiles. 
We see a lot of people today in the Gentile nations just totally blowing off God. And, and in a way, you, you see in the, in the scriptures, the Lord reaching out his hands to a world that has forsaken him. And he's trying to lovingly woo us to himself where he died on the cross for our sins, you know, and people that have followed out after Christ, they're gonna be saved. People that haven't, they're not. But this is kind of how this chapter begins, spreading out his hands to a rebellious people. That's, that's what God has done. But they're going after their own thoughts, going after their own way. Don't be that kind of person. Um, I said on Sunday, the people that go to heaven and the people go to hell, the difference is really a, a worldview. One says, you know, um, my will be done on earth. Uh, that's the unbeliever, but the, the believer says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The person who submits themselves to God, uh, repents of their sins, and accepts Christ as their savior. They're the, they're the truly saved person. He goes on in verse three, he says, um, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that, sacrifice, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves and lodge in the uh, monuments, which eat swine flesh and broth of an abominable things that is in their vessels, which say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but I will recompense, even recompense unto their bosom, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. Um, God is gonna pay back against his people. The Jews are being talked about here um, in that they forsook the Lord and this list of things that they did, it's pretty dastardly. You know, we might miss some of these, um, you know, images where it says that they um, sacrifice in gardens. Uh, that would be maybe a better translation, the groves where they would sacrifice unto pagan deities instead of the true and living God. And so that would be there in verse, um, verse four. But also those that would um, lodge in the mountains, that would be the place called the high place. Uh, where they would go up into the mountains and they would do their sacrifice and rituals for paganism up there. Also, they would eat swine's flesh. Now, some of you guys are like, hey, well, there's nothing wrong with a good hot dog. You know, God bless America. Well, as Jews, uh, pigs and swine and hot dogs would be forbidden. They're not kosher. To Americans, they're okay. <laughs> but, but the Jews were raising pigs and eating pig's flesh and, uh, and abominable things, the broth of abominable, abominable things. Um, interesting uh, sort of things there that had to do with, believe it or not, the broth of abominable things, necromancy. Uh, that is speaking to the dead, you know, and, and what have you. And it even kind of goes there uh, saying, uh, you know, they, they would do that uh, near the graves, it says there. Um, by the way, Christians need to be real careful when it comes to this uh, idea of, you know, uh, the occult and necromancy and, um, you know, uh, the, the graves. One of the things that Bethel Church has promoted, uh, and the, particularly the, the wife of the pastor of Bethel, 
um, pr promotes this grave soaking sort of notion. You can see it on YouTube. There's just like a Bethel and grave soaking. And you'll see there's people going to graves in Europe, you know, finding, you know, C.S. Lewis's grave and then laying on it, hoping to soak up some of the anointing, you know, that was on C.S. Lewis. Uh, and um, it gets weirder, you know, just trying to soak up the holy anointing. Uh, sort of like Elijah when he, you know, gave his mantle of power to Elisha uh, with the mantle, uh, his cloak or whatever. Um, but people are trying to do stuff that is dealing with the dead. And I think that's a dangerous uh, entry into really the occult. And we have to be really careful about that. Um, the Holy Spirit can fill you and, and anoint you and bless you. And you don't have to travel to Europe and fall on C.S. Lewis's grave or whoever you want the anointing from. Uh, just ask for the Holy Spirit. The Father, you know, will give, you know, any good father, you guys being fathers, Jesus said, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Father, which is in heaven, give the Holy Ghost to them that ask? All you gotta do is ask for the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life and the Lord will move and do a great work. Uh, and you don't have to try to soak graves and be weird. Uh, don't do that stuff. It dabbles in that stuff that the Jews were doing with uh, dealing with the dead and what have you. Um, you remember the story of King Saul when he went to see the witch uh, and to tried to raise up Samuel and people say, did he really see Samuel? I don't believe that was really Samuel. I believe he thought it was Samuel and it sounded like Samuel being raised up from the dead, but I believe it was um, just pure evil that Saul was consulting with. And that was uh, his craziness and his doom uh, when, he, when he did that kind of stuff. So watch out for that kind of stuff. So God would sort of pay them back in judgment is what he's saying here in verses three through seven because of their, adult, uh, you know, their uh, idolatry and their adultery uh, with other pagan deities as God calls it. There in verse eight, it goes on, it says, thus saith the Lord as the new wine is found in the cluster. And one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. Um, you know, just like there are good grapes and bad grapes and good grape clusters and bad grape clusters. Um, this is something, believe it or not, I know about this. When I was a kid, I got, I got a, a job uh, by one of the neighboring farms. It was a vineyard. And um, uh, it's kind of funny because as a kid, you know, to me, that was kind of like... Uh, the bad thing, you know, drinking alcohol. Uh, that's the way I was raised, you know, and, and uh, still to this day, kind of I'm glad about that. But um, we would go and we'd uh, do some, you know, work in the vineyard, but you could see the grapes. Some, some clusters were good, some were bad. Um, but, um, but this is a picture here of the good and the bad. But notice the Lord says, I'm not gonna destroy them all. This is that notion that we've talked about a lot in the Bible where, you know, the Lord declares, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Uh, you know, there's good clusters and bad clusters. By the way, do you wanna be like, you know, more godly? Uh, do you wanna be more like Christ? Do you wanna be more like the Lord? Um, that should be our, our, our desire. Um, one of the things the Lord does is he doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked, but he is going to judge each person according to their works. Remember how we saw that on, on Sunday in Revelation chapter 20? Those that will stand before the great white throne, they'll be judged, each one individually, according to their works. As it turns out, the Lord's not gonna divide out um, all the African-Americans and say, you guys stand over here, we're gonna judge you different than these people. 
Nope, they're all gonna be judged according to, he's not gonna divide out all the law enforcement officers, uh, the police officers in America and say, okay, I'm gonna judge all of you guys because you're law enforcement. Uh, nope. Um, Ezekiel 18 says, the soul that sins, it will die. <laughs> the soul, not a bunch of souls. That's the, one of the problems with today in the, a lot of people's worldview is they wanna clump people and say, these people are bad and this group is bad and all these people, and boy, right now, if you're a white person in America, man, you're evil, uh, white privilege and stuff. And they're clumping with this whole um, you know, notion of, you know, uh, you know, uh, I think this, you know, this race theory that we talked about on our prophecy update is being taught in our schools. That's, that's really sad um, because critical race theory is one of those things that is doing that. Basically just lumping everybody into groups and saying, these people are all bad, these people are all good. And um, you know, the Lord doesn't look at it that way. He's gonna look at each person and how they lived and what they did. And I think if you wanna be more like the Lord, you should think that way, unless trying to clump groups um, and in some ways, um, you know, I believe uh, something that is supposed to be fighting racism has become racism. Um, and we have to be careful on that one. Um, be more like the Lord. And, you know, I think there are really, really good law enforcement officers and, and, a, and a, the majority for sure. Um, and uh, there uh, no doubt has been and pr there's been proven uh, really evil and bad law enforcement officers. But every law enforcement officer I've ever known knows that the worst thing that is happening is bad law enforcement officers and that they're totally opposed to that. There's no support for that. Um, and so be careful when we start lumping people into groups and what have you. And that's true with races and, and, um, and any group that you're trying to say that they're all bad. Now, if there's a group that stands for something as a group that's all bad, let's go with something extreme, KKK. Well, we all know that if you're a part of the KKK, there's nothing good about that. There's nothing redemptive. It's all evil, dark, and ugly. And uh, so, you know, that, that would be an example of a group that they're gonna have to, each one who's joined that group, they're gonna be judged before God as well. Um, and they're gonna have to answer for that. But first of all, the Lord's gonna be the ultimate judge of that. We don't have to be, thankfully. We can fight against those things that are evil in our world and uh, what have you, but be careful. Clumping people, I see a real pitfall uh, and, um, and perhaps a lot of trouble on the horizon for our culture, for our world. The more we try to clump people into groups, the soul that sins, it will die. And the Lord never destroys the righteous with the wicked. You know, that's why, by the way, God looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and said, I'm gonna destroy those cities. And the Lord spoke to Abraham. Remember, Abram, uh, Abraham was there with the, uh, the two angels and the Lord himself. Um, there in uh, you know, Genesis chapter 19. And uh, there the Lord says, should I do this thing and tell Abraham what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And he said, yes, he's speaking rhetorically. I will reveal to him because he'll teach his family and his children after him of these things. So the Lord said, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, yeah, but what if there are righteous there in Sodom? And the Lord said, I do not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Remember the bartering thing Abraham did? Well, what if there's, you know, a hundred righteous or 50 righteous? And he gets right down to it. And he's ultimately, Abraham's worried because Lot, his nephew is there in Sodom. Are you gonna destroy everyone, even the righteous? And the Lord said, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And how can God do that? He knows who the righteous people are and who they aren't. So 
He pulled the righteous out before he rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, some of you might say, he didn't pull him out. Uh, a lot was told by the angel to leave, so he left. Nope, it's not what happened. Read your Bible. The Bible says, while Lot lingered there in Sodom, the angel grabbed him and put him outside of the city. Read your Bible. Um, what I love about that, by the way, what a perfect picture of how the Lord doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And when he poured out his wrath on Sodom, what a perfect picture of what's gonna happen during the tribulation period. Seven years of wrath being poured out. And you might say, but Lord, are you gonna destroy the righteous with the wicked? The Lord says, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And thus, the rapture of the church makes perfect, perfect sense. Just like the Lord lifted up Lot and put him outside of Sodom, the Lord's gonna lift up his church and put that outside of the world when the wrath of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Um, that's important for you to know that. Uh, and many other examples in the Bible where the Lord does not pour out his wrath upon his own people um, because he poured out his wrath upon his only begotten son on the cross. To punish you and I and have us go through times of wrath would to say, well, at the cross, Jesus didn't do enough to, um, to bear our sins, but we're gonna have to feel the wrath of God because of the sins of the world. Nope, Jesus died for the sins of the world and God in 1 Thessalonians chapter four and five says, we're to comfort one another with these words. In chapter five of 1 Thessalonians, it says, you and I as Christians, we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, I love that. That's, that's some good news. That's why it's called good news, by the way, because well, you're just trying to escape these things. Yep, correct. Uh, Luke's gospel, Jesus said, pray that you be counted worthy to escape all these things. And the way you'll be counted worthy is to be uh, robed in righteousness through Jesus Christ, to believe in the cross, declared righteous, and uh, our sins forgiven then we will not be appointed unto wrath. I see here this kind of imagery in this little verse of the Lord saying, I can sort out the good grapes from the bad and that I may not destroy them all. I'm gonna save some of them, the good ones. That's verse eight of our text here. Well, it goes on in chapter 65, verse nine. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains and mine elect shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a fold for flocks and the valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down in for my people have, uh, that have sought me. So again, there's, there's people that have been uh, the, seeking after the Lord. The Lord says, I'm not gonna destroy them, but I'm actually gonna have a place for them. Now, this is interesting because he's referring to, I believe Jesus Christ, the Messiah, when he says, I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob. That would be, remember, uh, the seed of a virgin that's also a Jew. Uh, and the Lord would bring his Messiah. And that's how they'd be saved. That's how they'd be called, in verse nine, mine elect. Now there's great confusion uh, on this term, the, the elect of God. Who are the elect of God? Well, those who've been elected uh, by God. Um, you know, um, and people struggle with this one. You know, uh, did I vote for myself or did God vote for me? The answer is this. I heard one preacher say, God voted for you, Satan voted against you, so what's your vote gonna be, for or against yourself? <laughs> and if you accept Christ, you're voting for, and then you're part of God's elect, because he elected you. Um, that's kind of the way it's put here. And some people say, I don't know if I like that. Doesn't matter, it's the way God says. There's people he's elected, um, you might even say selected. Uh, God's elect 
And um, you know, the, the, we've been divinely appointed to be saved. We've been chosen. And, uh, and some of you might say, how do you know if you're chosen? Simple answer, if you've confessed Christ and you believe in Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the grave, repented of your sins, you're saved, you're part of God's elect. And that's the good news, again, you know, the, the, the elect of God. But one thing you need to know, the, the elect always refers to God's people. The question is, is it God's chosen people, the Jews, or God's people, the chosen people, the church? Uh, who, who are the chosen? Both are chosen, both are elected. Um, but God's chosen people, the Jews, are um, the first ones. We, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 tells us, we were uh, added in later. The church of the Gentiles that believed in God, the God of the Jews, were grafted into that tree or that vine that's the Jewish people. We're grafted in. Praise the Lord for that. Um, now, um, some people say, well, the elect is the church then, not the Jews. They lost their election. No. God made an eternal covenant with the Jews, and we'll see that as we read on here in Isaiah. But um, both are God's elect. Don't be confused by this. Um, we know that from so many places. Like for example, Isaiah, we read in chapter 45, verse four. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. So right there, you know, you just got Isaiah 45, verse four. Israel's called mine elect. God calls them mine elect. Um, but the church is also called the elect of God. And you should know that. It's Romans chapter 11, by the way, um, verses five and verse seven. Let me just read that to you real quick. Romans 11, five through seven says this. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Uh, if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be works, then there's no more grace. Otherwise, the work and no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Um, we're talking about the Jews are in their blinded state according to Romans 9, 10, 11. But there's a, there's a remnant of people, the Gentiles, who, are, who would have their eyes not blinded, and they would be called God's elect, saved by his grace. That's us. So we're called the elect. Now this causes confusion when people read stuff like in the tribulation period, there's gonna be God's elect there. And you say, well, Brett, I thought you said we're gonna be raptured and suddenly you see the, the elect of God there. Well, there's a couple things going on. First of all, the rapture of the church happens. We're the elect of God called to heaven, rapture. In the tribulation period, there's gonna be two different groups that are still the elect of God. One, the Jews. Much of the Jewish people are gonna be there in the tribulation period. That's one of the reasons the tribulation is gonna happen is to um, wake up a nation that has lost their identity as God's chosen people. They're not believers. They're not God's you know, children in that sense of salvation. So the Lord's gonna wake up the Jews during the tribulation period and they're called God's elect and all of Israel will be saved during that time. There's a second group in the tribulation that's gonna also be called the elect of God and that is those who will be saved during the tribulation. Rapture of the church will lift his church up and out of here. But the scriptures indicate there's gonna be perhaps millions and millions of people who will actually believe during the tribulation period, which is good. It's still not gonna be easy. Some of you might say, well, Brett, if, if I'm kind of doubtful, so tell you what, if you get raptured and suddenly Athey Creek disappears um, and you're all in heaven, then I'll believe. You can choose that route if you want, but hopefully you don't get hit by a bus between now and then. 
as an unsaved person. Uh, and then secondly, you gotta understand during the millennial, or pardon me, during the tribulation period, if you're one of God's elect, it's gonna cost you. Uh, it's not gonna be easy. Uh, you know, being a Christian today is a piece of cake, but to be a Christian in the day of tribulation, it, it's gonna be horrifying and it's gonna be brutal. You'll be left out. You won't be able to buy or sell. You're gonna be locked out, left out. And ultimately, if they find you, the Bible says you'll be beheaded. Who beheads anybody anymore? Boy, that's an interesting thing to talk about. I don't have time for tonight. Of course, Islam still beheads people. Drug cartels in Mexico still behead people. But as it turns out, there's a movement right now that's kind of linked to the old French Bastille and the Madame Guillotine. Uh, you know, that whole day when people were get, getting their heads chopped off, the, you know, uh, aristocrats and uh, uh, the aristocracy were being beheaded. There's, there's a movement afoot right now to say these people that are against us, you know, in the Antifa and some of these other kind of groups, one of their symbols is a guillotine. Um, I think that's all staging for the tribulation period. Will they bring the guillotine back? The answer is yes. The Bible says that's how uh, the believer, the, the new Christian in the tribulation period is gonna end. They'll, they'll, they'll be beheaded for their faith. Then they get to go to heaven. But you say, uh, yeah, I'll just wait for that. No, better to be saved now and be raptured uh, and be with the Lord. That's, I'd choose that one. Uh, and by the way, being saved today will be the best move you ever made. Uh, don't delay. Today is the day of salvation, like the scriptures say. So you got mine elect there, uh, uh, the inheritor of my mountains, servants that dwell there, verse nine. But notice these places, Sharon uh, shall be a, a fold for flocks. Um, and, um, and the Valley of Achor, a place for the herds to lie down. And I love this. There's, there's a redemptive part of this. I'll tell you what it is. Do you remember where we read about the Valley of Achor and where that took place? It was in Joshua chapter seven, verse 26, where the story of Achan uh, took of the accursed thing and he and his family caused horrible trouble for Israel because they were deceitful and greedy and dishonest. And so Joshua had to hunt them down and find them. And then he burned their house and their family. And it was, it was a horrible day in, in Israel during the wilderness wanderings as they went into the promised land and started to take, you know, take the, the land. Um, so so what, what was redeeming about that? Well, they called the place where they burned Achan and his family the Valley of Achor. But here we read how the Lord's gonna take that valley and he's gonna use it a place for the herds to lie down in for my people that have sought me. It's gonna be a, sort of a place of refuge and a place of solace and peace. Um, that, that's just so like the Lord, taking our evil, sinful stuff and uh, turning it around to be uh, forgotten, first of all, and become even a place where people might even be blessed. I, I just see a beautiful redemptive peace here as we read that. So the Valley of Achor is where Achan was killed. You can make a note there if you want on your Bible. Verse 11, but you are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that'd be, you know, the Mount of the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, that prepare a table for that troop. Your margin might read good fortune and that furnish the drink offering unto that number. Therefore will I remember you to the sword. You shall all bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spake, you did not hear. 
but did evil before mine eyes and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And you shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. That he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes. This is the Lord explaining through Isaiah the prophet what was gonna happen when the Jews forsook the Lord. And uh, there's so much in the Bible about this, whether it's uh, you know, here in Isaiah or Ezekiel or other places where the Lord says, because you have forsaken me and gone to these other gods and goddesses and, and when I've called out to you, you wouldn't listen and you, you, you know, you're gonna try to be happy, but you're gonna be sad. You're gonna try to be prosperous, but you're gonna fail. That you know, juxtaposition of trying to live sumptuously and richly and blessed, but you're gonna be in despair and uh, none of it's gonna work out. Empty is what it would be. Solomon's sort of a microcosm of what we're talking about here. Solomon had it all, but he was miserable. Just like the Jews would have it all, but they'd be miserable. Why? Because they were rejecting the Lord. And so the Lord, this is what you learn from other scriptures, he scattered his people all over the earth. It's called the diaspora, where he scattered the Jews. And for 2,000 years almost, they would be scattered all over the, the earth in different countries. And this is why some people have become sort of, you know, a replacement theology people. God scattered his people. He's done with the Jews. But they should have changed their notes when Israel, the Jews, started to regather and regroup, uh, you know, back in the 1700s and 1800s, the Zionist movement, when Jews started moving back to the land. And they should have changed their notes for sure. May 14th, 1948, when Israel became a nation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the Lord says, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do something strange. And this would have sounded really strange to the Jews when he says in verse 15, the Lord shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. The Jewish people uh, was a curse. I mean, look at the uh, imagery there in Nazi Germany, um, you know, where the Nazis were taking over, you know, these regions and putting on Jews, you know, the yellow sleeve with the star of David saying Jude, you know, it was a curse to be marked as a Jew during that time. And, and really, even to this day, uh, there's Jews that don't wanna be identified as Jews because it tends to be a curse. But the Lord says, you know, you're, you've, I've leave, I'm leaving your name to be a curse for, unto my chosen, for the Lord shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. And wouldn't that be uh, uh, an interesting thing? What name would he call the other group? Well, I think it's, it's told to us there in Acts eleven twenty six. Jot this down in your notes. Acts eleven twenty six. we know what the other name is. Um, there in eleven twenty six of the book of Acts, it says, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, that when they came to pass, and it came to pass, that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught many people, and the disciples were called Christians. First in Antioch. Um, Interesting, uh, the word Christian 
uh, was originally ascribed by enemies of the early church. Um, and they were using it as a derogatory thing. You're a Christian, a little Christ. That's what they, they were, thought they were doing. You're a little Christ. And the church was like, I like that. That's what we're trying to be. We're, we're trying to be like Christ. So count us in. And it's funny how the name that was meant to be an insult uh, has actually became sort of the blessing uh, you know, for the church. Uh, and that's what we largely call Christianity today. Now, one of the things I got to say about Christianity and the word Christian, especially if you're new to this whole thing of being saved and a Christian, be careful because there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians in this world, but are not. And there's a lot of people that uh, did things in the name of Christianity and history that knew nothing about Christianity. Um, you know, I, I liken like the Crusades um, you know, the Crusades, love them or hate them, see the evil in them or whatever. There was, there was some real problems there. But that was really not as much about loving Jesus and knowing the Bible and uh, being a true Christian like in the early church. Uh, that was a whole different deal. And, but it was done in the name of Christianity. I remember as a kid, you know, hearing, um, uh, I think it was Dan Rather, uh, on 60 Minutes or one of those guys. And one of their you know, openings of their 60 Minutes show is Christians killing Christians, Muslims killing Muslims. And I remember hearing that over and over, week after week. And I, I finally, I think I had asked my mom and dad, why are Christians killing Christians? And my parents had to, you know, as a little kid, they had to say, well, there are people that call themselves Christians who are not Christians. Uh, and the world doesn't differ differentiate between a true Christian and a non-Christian. They just call them all Christians. Um, so it's a little bit like today when you see that, that church, you know, that goes around uh, bashing gay people and holding up signs and saying God hates gays and they, they protest the military funerals. And, and they're a church from somewhere off in the, you know, Kentucky or Kansas somewhere. And, um, and there's only like 50 people in the whole church and it's a cult. It's a weird uh, cult and they're all family members. It's very uh, weird, but they're not Christians. But it's amazing to me how uh, if you watch you know, CNN over the last decade, if you want to know what a Christian is, they'll show those people. Um, they like to show what Christians do. Um, and yet every Christian I know by the thousands would say, yeah, they're not Christians. So be careful when you hear that term Christian. Who is a Christian? It's a person who uh, recognizes they're a sinner and they want to be saved by Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. And so they repent of their sins, confess Christ as their savior and repent of their sins, confess Christ and with their mouth and with their heart say, I accept and believe the work of the cross and so that I'm forgiven, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And knowing that you're saved and forgiven because of Jesus and the cross, that's what a Christian is. It's not a good person or a bad person. We're all bad. It's not a person who pays to the church, the tithe and the offering. Nope, that's not a Christian. So be careful on this identity. But the Lord says there's a new group of people and I'm gonna give them a new name and it's not gonna be the Jews, it's gonna be the Christians. And that's who we are, we're part of that. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking God's done with the Jews at this point. Uh, God actually has a whole new uh, plan for the Jews after the Gentiles age is over. Romans chapter 11, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then the, all of Israel shall be saved. God's got a plan and a, and a purpose for them. So there we have it, this, another name, verse 15. Um, 
you know, and then, and then verse 16, I don't want to skip that. He who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of church, uh, truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because of the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes. That's the church. We're the ones who are blessed because our sins have been hidden from the eyes of God. Praise the Lord for that. Now in verse 17, we change gears. Uh, some people, some scholars uh, are uh, arguing that they should have put a chapter break here because um, the, verse 17 to the end of the book is kind of this um, sort of re-talking um, through the end. Um, and in fact, you can see a great uh, correlation between the end of the book of Revelation um, with, this, uh, with this end of the book of Isaiah you'll see some of the quoted verses from the book of Revelation, quoting from right here, Isaiah. So Isaiah closes his book out in the same way that the book of Revelation closes out. So that's kind of an interesting thing for you Bible prophecy buffs to do a compare and contrast and see how Isaiah closes this down. And this starts in verse 17. It says in verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Isn't that interesting that former things are not gonna be remembered or come to mind, the former things. Now, um, interesting because verse 16 told us that the, the former things and the former troubles will be forgotten because they're hid from the eyes of the Lord. That's our sins. Um, have you ever wondered, how can I be happy in heaven? Because I'll remember the stupid things I did on earth and I'll be sad about that. Or what about the uh, people that didn't become believers and were unsaved? And you'll think, how can I be happy in heaven if someone who I loved wasn't a Christian is not gonna be there? I don't know the answers to that. That's a hard one. But let me throw out a few things that might, you have to kind of get outside of laws of time, space, and physics and all this stuff. But first of all, right now, we know all of our loved ones only partially, and the Lord knows everything about them. And a person who's unsaved, the Lord knows how many opportunities they had to follow and believe, but rejected over and over again. And no matter who's unsaved, we will all say, the Bible tells us, we'll say righteous and true are his judgments. We'll, we'll get it. Whenever the wrath of God is poured out upon the world, we're not gonna say, that's not fair, Lord. Why didn't you save my, you know, my uncle Bob? Uh, he was a great guy. Nope, when you see it, you'll say, actually, he wasn't and he hardened his heart. And you'll know all this. You'll know the full story of Uncle Bob and you'll realize that he didn't deserve salvation because God declared it so. And nobody's gonna second guess that when we stand before God. And I know that's hard for us to picture and even fathom right now, but um, that's what's gonna happen. And then the, the, there's gonna be something that's gonna be good and that is somehow we will forget the former things. That's linked to the sinful things. And uh, that will make, it's not that we're gonna be stupid in heaven uh, or in eternity, but it's like the Lord is able to forget. Uh, don't you love it that the Lord is able to forgive and forget our sins? You can't do that right now. When we die and when we live in eternity, I think we're gonna have that same ability is to see things uh, that were evil, just forget them. Uh, like the Lord can do right now. That's how we're gonna be able to stand in his presence because he's forgiven and forgotten. We're gonna have that same characteristic, I believe. So the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. I look forward to that day, verse 17. But, verse 18, 
Be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I, de- I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. What's this thing about a child dying at a hundred years old? We're talking about the millennial kingdom. That's gonna be very interesting. It seems that maybe, um, remember in the book of Genesis, you read about the time of Methuselah and uh, Enoch and, and uh, Noah and all this. These guys lived to be, you know, a couple of these guys got almost close to a thousand years old. And some people say, well, that didn't happen. Well, this antediluvian world, the pre-flood world, um, was strange in so many ways. Um, it's, and there's, there's all kinds of things we could talk about. Sort of a, it seemed like it was a greenhouse effect on the whole earth and people lived healthily. There was some kind of vapor canopy around the earth, perhaps. Scientists uh, have speculated on where did all the water from the flood come from? And uh, it came from the firmament, but also came from the earth. And the earth was very different. You know, why did science find big furry woolly mammoths with buttercups in their mouths that were instantly frozen in the ice age? Uh, Where did they get the little flowers that they were chewing on their cud right when they were frozen that were perfectly preserved? That's the funny thing. Um, There's all kinds of questions about why up in the Arctic regions they found these, um, you know, mammoths that had flowers in their digestive system. Um, The answer, it was a different world perhaps. Um, and um, I believe the millennial kingdom might somehow look a lot like that antediluvian world only without sinners, like, you know, the people of Noah's day. And, uh, you know, that, the idea is if a, if, a, if, a, if a person dies at 100 years old in the millennial kingdom, it'll be like a child dying. That's what it's saying here. So um, there's going to be a different kind of thing in the millennial kingdom where we live longer or, or people will live. Now, during the millennium, this gets confusing because those of us that have been raptured, we get new bodies, we're not gonna be living in the same way as the people on the earth, but that's a whole technical discussion that we go through when we go through the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, And you can look that up. We've done teachings on that if you want. Uh, Just go through the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation and we talk about that. But life um, spans will be extended like the before the flood. I think that's gonna be a, a part of that. And it's gonna be a beautiful time. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. <coughs> Excuse me, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. The dust shall be the serpent's meat and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, saith the Lord. Boy, this is millennial kingdom stuff. And you know, you always hear people say, the lion lies down with the lamb. Well, technically, if you wanna be biblical, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. It used to be the wolf feeds on the lamb. 
Now they're gonna just be eating together. Everybody's, for you vegetarians out there, uh, all the animals are gonna be going back to vegetarianism. <laughs> um, the wolf and the lion gonna eat uh, you know, straw or hay, if you would. Um, but notice the, the one person who eats the same stuff during the millennial kingdom is the serpent. But the serpent, the dust shall be the serpent's meat. Dust, remember when did the serpent start eating dust? Um, that's what we used to say when I was a kid and we'd ride our bikes, you know, and, and if we were passing our friend, we'd say, eat my dust as we flew by them and uh, raised a bunch of dust. But this, the, that, that phrase, eating the dust, is the curse that was passed down to the serpent after the uh, tricking of Eve and Adam there in the garden. And he, the, the serpent shall eat the dust of the earth. Uh, and uh, so even during the month now, we know where the serpent's going to be eating dust, and that's in the Abuso. We talked about that on Sunday. Remember, he's, he's held in, uh, in that place for a thousand years, and then he'll be loosed for a short time at the end of that thousand years. We saw that on Sunday. If you missed that, you'll want to catch up on that. That's important stuff. So uh, th- that's, these, are, these are descriptive uh, you know, things of what's going to happen. You know, uh, there's not going to be any serpent that's going to hurt or destroy uh, but everything's going to be peaceful and prosperous. I mean, there's an image there of people just living in their houses with no threat. Nobody's going to, you won't need a security system because nobody's going to try to take your stuff. You're just going to be there with your little vineyard and farm and everything's going to be great during the millennial kingdom. That's what it's saying here. It's a picture for the Jews to say, wow, a time of peace and prosperity for people. Well, it goes on in chapter 66, verse one, it says, thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne. Um, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things that mine hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. We're about to hear people who are blowing off God altogether. This is, again, Isaiah just kind of cycling through topics. And he's, again, going to talk about the rebellious people of Israel. He's like, where are the people that are listening? Where are the people that are going to go worship at at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? He says, I look to him that is poor of contrite spirit. By the way, that's a thing the Lord always uses in his word. For example, Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near unto them that are of a broken heart and saves such as as be of a contrite spirit. The Lord is near unto those people. Um, If you're broken and contrite, man, the Lord says, I'm near you. Whether you know it or not, the Lord cares about you. But we're gonna see the the, uh, opposition of that, a haughty, prideful people that could care less about God. But the person that's broken before God, the Lord says, I will be near to you. I love that. Well, now he's gonna talk about the bad behavior of the Jews. And uh, we have to be careful because we can do the same errors if we're not careful. Verse three, he that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth swine's blood, he that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delighteth in their abominations. I will also choose their delusions. I will bring their fears upon them because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear, but they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. Hear the word of the Lord, ye 
that tremble at his word, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. Um, okay, so what's this talking about? These people are sacrificing, but their sacrifices are an abomination. Why? Well, just you can look at this and see the context of this, but it's simply saying they're doing all the sacrifice and some of it was even right. You should make sacrifice the Jews in Jerusalem on the altar at the temple. But their sacrifices were an abomination because they could care less about God. They were just doing it as religious ritual and they were doing it even wrongly. Uh, you know, uh, sacrificing swine's blood. Then what happens, they start kind of normalized and then they get into these perverted versions of temple worship that were just an abomination to the Lord. Could that be true of us as well? You know, the church is given very clear descriptions of what it's supposed to be in the New Testament. And uh, I love the simplicity of what the, the church, the early church was and what it's supposed to be. But could it be that some of our behaviors in the church have become not only not pleasing to the Lord, but maybe even an abomination to the Lord? Um, that's why one of the things every church should do is say, Lord, what is your, what is your church supposed to be? And I believe the, the model is given for us in the book of, of the New Testament, but the book of Acts, uh, man, we see the early church start. You know, Acts 2, 42, they were given steadfastly, continually to the breaking of bread, prayer, the apostles' doctrine, which is teaching the word, that was the first one, uh, and, and fellowship, just simple. Teaching the word, prayer, breaking of bread, which I think was communion, maybe even having feasts and meals together at the same time, um, and then fellowship, koinonia. By the way, that's one of the things we need to be creative in this day of quarantine uh, is to make sure people are getting that koinonia, that fellowship, that uh, nobody's being left alone. I've noticed that some of the churches have um, told, you know, the, um, you know, their church, we're not opening until 2021, you know, and, and who knows when they really will open. But I think churches should be careful because there needs to be koinonia and ministry one to another. And, and I've noticed that in churches like ours and probably like a lot of churches around the country, um, there's the people in the church that are really well connected and they have friends everywhere and family everywhere. And this, this coronavirus quarantine was a blessing. I have to say, that's kind of the way it was for us. You know, um, we were quarantined for, you know, the first, you know, four months. Uh, and I had my kids around and we were able to have meals every night. And it was the funnest time I've had in a long time, just being able to hang out with my family. Uh, that's just the truth of it. And, and not only that, um, without people in the congregation, normally when I was here, I'd be busy, busy, busy. But I was able to spend more time with our church staff as we were you know, putting out these live stream productions here. And, and uh, you know, just, it, was, it, was, it was just a different season. Um, so for those that have that, we're going along during the quarantine just fine. And I noticed the pastors, a lot of them are saying, yeah, so we're just gonna shut down the church. It's all good. But here's the problem. There's a lot of people that aren't as connected as I am, or some of you are and they're alone in their apartment. They don't have a ton of friends and they don't have a workplace where people are saved and they're, they're, they're starving for that koinonia that was essential in the early church. 
where they would fellowship one with each other and build each other up and encourage each other. There was koinonia, it's that part of that loving community around the church where they would focus on the Lord and talk about things of the Lord. Um, and that's why the Lord says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together as the custom of, of some is. And so there, there was a point where we had to say as a church, uh, time's up. You know, we, we, we abided by, you know, those, um, you know, um, mandates. I'm not gonna call them laws because they're not laws. No laws have been passed about masks and um, churches meeting and stuff. That's, that's a misnomer. But um, ideas given by the governor and their team. But as suicide is racing on the highest it's been in a long time, and alcoholism and, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of other issues going on that seems to be being ignored, part of which the church of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to come around each other and support those that are hurting. And so uh, that's one of the reasons we opened our doors uh, on Sundays and Saturday night, because we really feel that church is essential. Um, and thank the Lord, the federal government declared church is essential and they told us to open their, our doors. So we're abiding by that. Uh, but our state government says no lockdown. And while you can have a, in Clackamas County, a hundred people in a movie theater, um, but you can't have 50 people in a church building still. Um, and I think that's where we started seeing the hypocrisy. You could riot in Portland and everybody's being, you know, or you could even protest in Portland. Everybody was being celebrated if you were on one side of the political spectrum. Um, and that was all okay. But if you were protesting on the other side, you were not social distancing and you were, you know, super spreaders and stuff. There's definitely this kind of weird hypocrisy and a political agenda and a power move that we, we kind of had to say, nope, we're gonna answer to the Lord first and foremost. And that's why we, you know, several months ago, you know, opened our doors again. And I say that not as a church protest. Um, we're not one of the churches saying, we're gonna make a big deal and try to protest. And, and if you'll notice, we're even trying to acquiesce uh, as much as we can with trying to keep somewhat of a social distancing and, and you know, people wanna wear masks, they can. Um, and, and we'd encourage that uh, if they want to. Um, but we're not, we're not, you know, locking down like we're like, like exactly, you know, the mandate. Uh, but, but because we feel like the Lord has called us to a higher authority and, so, and there's a real need for people to have fellowship, people who are hurting. And, uh, and, and man, if you could only see on Sundays when people come into the sanctuary here and just the tears of joy as people are walking in. I, I wish I could show you, if you've not been here yet, um, man, it's like, uh, welcome home. And it's just heart, heart-wrenching to see how hard this has been on a lot of people. Um, and if it hasn't been hard on you, great. Stay home and, and watch online. That's why we do what we're doing. And I hope it's a blessing to you there. And you can do that as long as we can. That's why we're still doing, you know, watch parties of small groups. And we're encouraging people to stay home. If they feel sick, uh, they, they need to stay home. If they're worried about catching the coronavirus, stay home and stay online. But if you're one who really needs that uh, church fellowship, and I think ultimately we all do, ultimately, um, but for this season, uh, man, we want you to come back. We want you to be here. Um, on Sundays and Saturday nights for those services. What about Wednesday? We'll see. Um, I've noticed Wednesday nights are kind of cool because uh, not a lot of people have actually said uh, that they're worried about that. Uh, but, but Sunday morning, that's kind of the non-negotiable. We should be gathering. The church needs to gather. And so we've been doing that for quite some time. But I love how the early church was the definition of what the church is supposed to be. 
Here, the Jews lost sight of what they were supposed to really be doing in Jerusalem at the temple. The church can lose sight. And man, if we're not careful, we're gonna let the world redefine what the church is supposed to be. Don't, don't let that happen to, to, your, to your church. Uh, let's, let's let the Lord dictate what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to look like. Well, that's where the Jews are here. They've, they've become an abomination in their worship practice and what have you. Um, in verse five, it says, you know, hear the word uh, of the Lord that you tremble at his word. I hope we're still trembling at his word. Um, uh, you know, where, where we, uh, we see the, the truth and we say, man, this is a fearful thing to be handling the truth of God's word. Um, and uh, let the Lord be glorified. Um, and then verse six, a voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. This is the Lord, um, you know, rebuking his enemies there at the end, uh, verse six. It goes on in verse seven. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring uh, to the birth and shall not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All that ye that love her rejoice for the joy, uh, rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. That ye may suck or nurse and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall you suck, ye shall be borne upon her sides and be dandled or literally bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like an herb and the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. So this is what the Lord is gonna do for Jerusalem. And I believe it's possible that this is describing um, what some of us, and, and if you're older in this room, you saw with your own eyes. When Israel, you know, the, the, there's a rhetorical question here um, in verse eight. Um, you know, can a nation be born at once? The answer is yes. And, that, and then it's talking about how then after it's born, uh, it'll be flourishing and prosper and the Lord will, will take care of it as a nursing mom, you know, is the, kind of the idea here. And, uh, and, and then people will rejoice with her, those that love her. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Who are those that love Jerusalem and love Israel? Us. Um, at least the church that's supposed to be loving Jerusalem, people who love, you know, I, I love it, you know, because um, this is one of the marks, I think, of God's people. Psalm 122, verse six says, um, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for they shall prosper that love thee. The Lord told uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless the nations that bless Israel and I will curse the nations that curse Israel. And, uh, the nations that are pro-Israel uh, and love Israel and care about the Jews in Jerusalem, they're gonna be blessed. And when Christ, when, when Jerusalem starts to prosper, even the Gentiles are gonna rejoice. And that's us, the church of Jesus. 
Um, what an amazing day we live in to see Israel prospering so profoundly. And they're living in a place of real peace and prosperity right now, which should be a warning to you Bible prophecy buffs to see that perhaps this is the Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophecy, the precursor to that. Because they'd say peace and safety, you know, peace and prosperity will be during that time when the attack of Gog Magog happens. But uh, I digress. But the, uh, the Lord here is saying, this is what's gonna happen. Can a nation be birthed in a day? The answer is yes. And he did that. May 14th, 1948 is Israel's birthday. Um, and they keep prospering. And one of the things that's allowed Jerusalem to prosper more than ever in the last few years is when we as a nation uh, declared Jerusalem as the capital city for Israel. And that was a big deal. Uh, that was a really big deal. And uh, I, I, I really think that's part of this blessing on Jerusalem. And now the world kind of has to acknowledge because the United States acknowledged Jerusalem as its capital. And we're seeing some of these prophecies come to pass in our lifetime which is interesting because you'll note the rest of some of this, you know, this chapter here is gonna talk about the very end. Could it be that these are signs, the fact that Israel's prospering, that Israel's been rebirthed as a nation, they're 70 years old now, um, and uh, it's, I think it could be the time where we're seeing all of these prophecies come to pass. Well, verse 15, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Anybody wanna take a guess of what time period this is gonna be? Um, you may have sensed a shift in the language and the answer is the tribulation period. A time of fire and God's wrath and judgment. That's verses 15 and 16. Verse 17, they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens. Um, uh, now this sounds so beautiful, but they, they might say the groves. Um, behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be uh, confused, consumed together, saith the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations in tongues and they shall come out and see my glory. Um, the Lord's gonna say all those that were sacrificing in the groves and to idols and what have you, they're all gonna see his glory during this tribulation period. Verse 19, and I will set a sign among them and I will send those that escape to them unto the nations to Char Tarshish, Pol, Lud, and draw the bow to Tuval and Javan and to the isles far off that have not heard my, my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all the nations upon horses and chariots and litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in the clean vessel in the house of the Lord. And I will also take them for priests and for Levites, saying the Lord." We've seen a, 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 the you know, regathering of Jews uh, called Zionism, uh, where the Jews are in Israel and, and Jerusalem today. But there's gonna be another wave of that, I believe, after um, you know, or during the tribulation period, where Jews are gonna keep flooding back and eventually all of Israel, all of Jews are gonna go to Jerusalem. Um, and that's gonna culminate in the millennial kingdom where all the Jews will come there and the Lord's gonna say, I'm gonna pick out the priests and the Levites, 
you know, uh, the, the Kohens and the other Jews that are parts of the Levite tribe. And he's going to employ them for service there at the temple during the millennial kingdom. That's what this is saying. The Lord's going to gather people even more so than we're seeing right now, the gathering of, of Israel. Well, verse 22 and 20 through 24, we looked at on Sunday, he continues verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth will I make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an, adhor an adhorring unto all flesh. We saw the new heaven and the new earth, the millennial kingdom, but then hell. And that's the people who have rejected God. After the great white throne judgment, they'll be placed into Gehenna or hell. And we looked at that, the, where the worm doesn't die. And, we'll talk, and you, we defined that and talked about that on Sunday. Isaiah is a heavy book. In a lot of ways, it ends on a heavy note of hell. But I want to tell you, um, I love the redemptive part. You can either go to heaven or hell. Uh, and Isaiah paints a colorful picture one way or the other. But I love it's through Jesus Christ who Isaiah very profoundly prophesied of the coming Messiah. How was Isaiah received during the time of his ministry? As we close this book, you know, whatever happened to old Isaiah? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know how Isaiah died, biblically speaking, but the Jewish Talmud writes an interesting story. Now, whether it's true or not, I don't know for sure, but it is interesting that the rabbis to this day teach that Isaiah was um, running for his life because King Manasseh, remember he was a time, it was during the time of Isaiah when Manasseh started to reign. He was the most wicked king in Israel's history and hated you know, God's word, hated the prophets. And so he was running after Isaiah, wanting to slay him. Well, Isaiah, the story is told from the Talmud um, that Isaiah was running for his life and uh, the, the army of Manasseh was chasing after this poor prophet who was just speaking the truth and found a tree that was, had like a big hollow in it and he kind of was able to squeeze into this little hollow and hide in the tree, but the army figured out he was in there. And they could either go in the tree and try to get him and get him out, but Manasseh said, leave him in there, but cut the tree down. And so they ran a saw through the, the tree. And uh, as the story is told, the blood of the prophet started to flow out of the tree as they were cutting it, uh, as he was hiding there. And he was literally sawn in half um, as a person by Manasseh, king of Israel. Well, that's depressing, Brett. That's a, a sad note to end Isaiah on. But do you think Isaiah is bummed out in heaven? Oh, man, what a bummer. I wish I didn't run in that tree or... I wish I wouldn't have prophesied those prophecies. Um, you know, Manasseh, as the Talmud tells us, was arguing that Isaiah was contradicting himself over and over again in the book. Um, people try to say that today, by the way, the wicked people of the day. But um, Isaiah, instead of defending what, he, what the Lord told him to say, he uh, just stood his ground. And he died, you know, for it. Paul the apostle said, I don't count my life dear unto myself. And in Philippians, he talked about, man, it'd be great if I get killed for the faith. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul would say. But Isaiah had that same mentality and, and uh, I, I have no doubt that he has no regrets that he lived for Christ, lived for God and spoke his word in a powerful way. Isaiah the prophet, what a hero of the Bible. 
And uh, I look forward to meeting him someday when we get to heaven. Uh, But all that to say, what about you? Are you afraid in this day to speak the truth? Isaiah wasn't, and it cost him. Yeah, but what if it costs me? Big deal. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't count my life dearer to myself, and neither should you. Uh, We live for Christ in this puny little time called life. And then when you die as a believer, eternity with the Lord forever. That's what it's all about. I think Isaiah had that, you know, eternal perspective and it served him well. And he was truly one of the great prophets, truly quoted many times over in the New Testament as the man that God was speaking through at the time. And we'll meet Jeremiah the prophet uh, starting next week. So there it is, the book of Isaiah. Lord, we are so thankful for your word that's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that it would just continue to speak to our hearts. Um, I pray that as we've just scratched the surface here in Isaiah, give us greater understanding of the truth, Lord, and how to apply it and uh, appropriate your word. So we pray your blessing on all those tonight who've listened to this teaching and all those who will listen uh, afterward. Bless them, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.